Thank you for joining us for our series through the Book of Romans. This book is full of rich truths about the Christian life, and we hope that throughout our study, your identity in Christ and our call to communitas are affirmed in you each week. Let's dive into the text. I bring greetings from Oakland. It was just a gift to be down there opening the word with them last Sunday. Uh, Thankfully, I didn't miss you because I got to be here in the morning, but then was preaching down there. And it is just so cool what God has invited us into as a church. Amen. To see multiplication happening, not just here in the Sacramento region, but in other places that he's invited us in to coach, to plant, to invest. And so thank you for your time, your treasure, your talent. God is building his kingdom and the darkness will not win. Amen. It's just, it's a gift for me to open the word. If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter two as we get ready to dive in. Now, how many of you guys are parents out there? Anybody have children? Um, how many of you guys have parents out there? Any of you guys have parents? You guys are with it, second service. That was a good little chuckle. I got a belly laugh from four of you, right? We all know what it's like to either be parented or be a parent. When your kid hits somebody when they're two, what do you do? You say, that's wrong, that's bad, and you put them in timeout. If you're not putting them in timeout, would you do that, please? Like, it's not good, because even at the age of two, here's my fear, too often we're like, oh, it's just so cute. It's not cute. I've been hit by some of your two-year-olds, right? Like, every minute I preach too long, the kids' team has me come back and serve and pay off my debt. And so, so I've had your two-year-olds hit me. It's not nice. It's not cute. I know you're embarrassed as a parent. Put them in timeout, because they actually know better. They do. I think even at the age of two, it's like, I don't have words, but I know I'm not supposed to smack the pastor in the face, right? Like, I know that much. And then when they become 10 and they hit somebody, what do you do? You, you take their phone away. You, you ground them. And then because when they become 20 and they hit someone in the face, they go to what? Prison. Now, now let me be very direct. All of these principles are really the same. Two, 10, 20, they're all the same. It's this promise that was broken and, and the promise of consequence, which is a timeout, it's a separation. They're all timeouts, and the main premise is that there is a consequence that comes for our actions, and that the specifically that God is not lenient, that all of these consequences fit the crime. They're all progressive. And, and I want to show you that God actually taught us these tactics, tactics in the book of Romans chapter 2. Turn with me. We're going to start in verse 12. He taught us this. That here's how it unfolds in Scripture. For God, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. They actually show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? Spirit of God, we deserve wrath. Everyone in this room, we may laugh at the two-year-old version of of sin or the 10-year-old or the 20, but there's a progressive reality of consequence that we deserve. Just the fact that we have breath in our lungs right now, Spirit, you've given us mercy and you have not given us what we deserve. And so could we receive your mercy? Spirit, I ask that we would redeem this chance to be transformed by you and into your image for your glory, for our good, and for the joy of people all around us that they may see the power of God to save and to redeem. And everybody said, amen. Now, here's where we've been. 
We're in the middle of this, this long Roman series. It was kind of fun this morning. I opened my preaching book. My, my preaching book has got bigger font because I just need it, right? So I opened up and I got to flip the page today. Like, guys, we made it to the second page of Romans. Congratulations. We've been spending a lot of time focusing on our sin. That's actually what Paul's been inviting us into. Now, remember when Paul writes this letter, he doesn't write it, I think, to be read necessarily four to 10 verses at a time. They sat down in a house church setting and they read the whole letter together. But this was the thesis of the letter. This is the launching pad for everything we're going to keep studying for the next two years. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation, everyone who believes. And if you're in spiritual prison, is it good to be saved? That's depressing. I heard seven of you. First service, I expect it. You're asleep. You should go to first service. We want to create more space. If you deserve to be in this place, but God, rich in mercy, sets you free, is that good news? It's the power of God to save every one of us who deserves the wrath of God, the separation because of my sin. It's the power of God to save us from ourselves. That's what we saw in the next verse, right? It's the righteousness of God that's revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, when we gather on Sunday mornings 50 times a year, I assume I'm talking primarily to believers. If you don't trust and treasure Jesus yet, I'm so glad you're here. Like, that's awesome to fight for your joy, to figure out what is this joyful community of faith thing about. But the majority of our time, I'm focused on training you guys as followers of Jesus who have put your faith in Jesus. We use this stool as a metaphor for the throne of our heart. That in the beginning, the gospel is simply this, that God designed you and me to be in relationship with the Father, and in the garden, God sat on the throne of my heart, and life was good, but that only lasted for two chapters. What happens in chapter three is Adam and Eve, and you and me, and I would argue everybody in between, not God, off the throne of our heart, and we took this seat, and it's got vacancy for one. Sin entered the world through our choices through us rejecting relationship with God. And so the gospel is that our problem of sin, God took onto himself and he made a way when there was no other way. It's the power of God for salvation, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. And if we trust and treasure Jesus, then we're gonna live by faith and we will live righteously. Now, how many of us are crushing that whole living righteously thing? Well, that's why we're here. We're here on some level because we recognize that we are sinners saved by grace, that although we've given our heart to Jesus, that the reality is way too often you and I practice what we call one-cheek faith. We give Jesus half the seat and then we take half. And so this is the sin that I think Paul is calling us on some level to slow down and think about. How many of you guys are too busy? Anyone in here too busy? You're probably too busy to raise your hand because most of you are lying right now and you're in church. But I'm too busy. I don't think that Satan wants us to slow down and think about our sin because I think sin may lead us to a savior. I don't think Satan wants to think about sin. I don't think that cancer is even a tool of the enemy. I think it's a result of the fall. Don't miss that. But I think cancer makes us desperate, dependent, and it leads us to the cross. Chaos in our life, being too busy, that means we won't focus on what matters most. And here's what Paul's doing. He's giving us a gift. After he pivots from the thesis, he goes on at the beginning of chapter one, and he says, all of these things that are really focused on the core of our tree, are we healthy? Do we actually have a solid foundation? Are we planted as a tree by streams of living water? But the truth of the matter is, and here's where Paul starts in his letter, he says, all of you Gentiles are in serious trouble. The Gentiles are under the power of sin that internally, the power of God to save, that was for the Gentiles. Why? Because inside of their tree was rotting away from the inside out. On the outside, they might've looked fine. 
But on the inside, they did not. And I can imagine in the house church, if you remember, Paul's letter is being written and all these Jewish believers are like, yeah, Paul, you get them. You get those Gentiles, they're sinners. You see all the they's, right? They, they, they. And this whole list of sin. And it's all about the attitude. It's less about the actions. And then in chapter two, he pivots so that you too, Jews, are under the same power of sin. You also without excuse in your head, in your heart, and coming out your hands. Here's what he says in 2.1. He says, therefore, you have no excuse. Why? All these Jews were like, amen. They're sinners, they're sinners. He says, you're judging them. That just shows that you're a sinner too. But even beyond judging, what's he say? He says, you're a hypocrite. You do them yourselves. And so here's the truth of the gospel. We've rejected God. God's gonna give us what we deserve and he's gonna give it to us based on what we've done. We as Americans, we love what's ours. We want what's fair. Do you like things being fair, anybody? You're afraid to answer. We want what is rightfully ours. And so here's what we see in chapter two, one through five, Paul says, God's going to give you what you deserve based on what you did. Here's the problem. What you did deserves wrath. What you did deserves death. What you did deserves separation. Even as you judge other people, it shows your own heart. It's not only you'll be judged based on what you've did, what you've done, but you'll also be judged based on what you didn't do. Look at verse five. What you didn't do was repent. Everyone in this room, not God off the throne of their heart, every one of us has taken the Father's seed in the garden through our life, through our time, our treasure, our talent, our actions show that. What we didn't do is we didn't repent. Repentance is getting off the throne of your heart and saying, God, I'm sorry I took your seat. Repentance is confessing that you spend your time, your treasure, your talent for the things that you think will make you happy. That's how you know what sits on the throne of your heart. What makes you happy? What makes you sad? What brings you joy, what makes you depressed, it probably has its place in the throne of your heart. And so the issue is not just that we sin, it's that when we sin, we didn't repent because it was God's kindness that was meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are now storing up wrath for yourself. And so again, aren't you encouraged? Some of you guys are like, this is my first time to church in two years. I'm so excited to be here. I can't wait to be encouraged by the word. We're hosed. Are you hearing the word? All of us, at least we're all hosts together, amen? Every one of us is in the same situation. And so Paul at this point is now pivoting and in verses six through 10, he's moved on from just the Gentiles are hosts. He says, you Jews are hosts also. And he's gonna render to everyone according to their works. He's gonna give you what you deserve. And every American's like, yes. And then you're like, oh crud. Because you start to hear the letter. You start to see what we deserve, that he will give eternal life for those who deserve it, but there will be wrath and fury for those who do not. There will be tribulation. And then we have verse 11 is the first of four fours. Four, God does not show show partiality. God is fair. He is just. He is firm. And he's going to give you exactly what you deserve. Here's the problem. We actually might not want that after all. Here's my summary statement for today. If you you leave one thing, here's what I think Paul's doing. In Romans 2, Paul has set this trap. You saw it for the Gentiles. The Gentiles and the Jew. It's this trap for anyone who thinks that the list in chapter 1 of sin isn't about them. Because the reality is we are all on the hook for our choices and our sin against God. And so now Paul is attempting to deepen our understanding, our experience of God's gospel. This is good news. Why is the gospel good news? Because we recognize the bad news of the throne of our heart. The gospel is good news, and that's what unites us all out of our sin and into him. And in two verses, 12 through 16, he's going to continue to develop this essential truth that God is not lenient. He is undeniably fair, unmistakably firm in his judgment for everyone. So let's start walking through the text. There's been two groups so far as we come to 12. 
Two different groups. Here's the first group. Those who lived good lives and deserve eternal life. Here's my fear. Way too often we're like, well, that's kind of me. Because the standard is somebody else. And let's be honest, you are better than the person next to you. Unless you're sitting next to your spouse, you're way worse. But on an airplane, in the subway, in a bus, in a car, in an Uber, we are so quickly to identify the sins of others, but not of ourselves. And so I think regularly we can read this. Yeah, there's two groups of people, the good people and the not good people. And we tend to say, well, we're not the not good people, so therefore we are the good people. Here's the problem. That's not what the book says. In fact, let's be honest. It's not what you say either if you were actually to convict yourself in a court of law. That's what we saw a couple weeks ago, that Jesus will just let you be the prosecutor against yourself for your flesh and for your sin. And so these two groups, A, yeah, those who live good lives, they deserve eternal life. The problem is no one in this room or in this world qualifies to be an A. And it's hard because I'm like, I'm an A student, not in the kingdom. I've rejected God just like everybody else. So then we're all Bs, those who have not lived good lives. So it's one of those two things. And here's what Jesus says in the book of Mark, chapter 10, verse 18, only God is good. In fact, that's part of what leads him to be crucified. If you really pay attention to the whole gospels, it's that Jesus claimed to be God and only God was good. Therefore, the Jews thought that was heresy because only God was good. Jesus, you can't be good. You can't be the son of God. But Paul's going to say in Romans 3, verse 11, very, very clearly, no one is righteous. No, not one. Only God is good. Now, that's huge because we live in a world that makes us feel like we're good and we have hearts that are deceitful that make us feel like, no, 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 we're okay. Church, none of us are okay. Amen? And so on some level, I apologize a little bit like, man, Romans has been so depressing. It's for your good because we're not good. And so we have to sit here. And so Paul's inviting us to just sit for a moment in our sin to not be too hurried. So thanks for being here today because you chose for this moment to slow down and to hear from the voice of God through Paul's letter. Here's what the verse says. He starts here now with two more groups. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Pay attention, sin without the law and sin what? Without the law. It's the same language, with or without the law, it's still about sin. So now within the category of B, which applies to all of us, now there's two more groups. Paul loves just cutting the room in half. The problem is it's like everyone's on one side. There's two more groups now. Within B, there's A, those who have not lived good lives according to the law. Who's he talking about there according to the law? Who got the law? The Jews. Now, I'm not a Jew. I have some good Jewish friends. I'm not an ethnic Jew. We have some that are part of our church, Messianic Jews. They believe Jesus sits on the throne of their heart that he was the Messiah. But, but again, the Jews had the law. And so part of what Paul's leaning into here is simply this. Do the Jews have an inside track to salvation because they got the law? Do the Jews actually get the gospel? Do they get Yahweh more than the Gentiles? And Paul's saying, no, 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 God is fair. He shows no partiality. His judgment will be just. If you have the law, you're going to be judged by what? The law. If you don't have the law, you're going to be judged by what? We're going to see there in a second. Two things. Those who have not lived good lives according to the law, that's the Jews. B, those who have not lived good lives apart from the law. And this is what I say, I don't believe the phrase good Christian should ever be used. I don't think the word good Jew should ever be used. The law was given to the Jews to show that they weren't going to ever measure up, that they actually needed a Messiah. And that's the truth of the law. And so did any Jew ever say, I crushed it. I just nailed the law today. I did everything perfect. No, that's why they would go to Passover. (laughs) 
That's why they would go back to the synagogue. That's why they would repent and they would offer sacrifices. The law was set up for the Jews to see that they actually needed a savior. And so that's the truth of the gospel. That's true of the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's the truth of what Jesus says. And we looked at this verse just a couple of weeks ago in Luke chapter 10. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes. They would have been overwhelmed by their sins and they would have repented and got thrown of their heart. But it will be more bearable in the judgment of Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Remember, Capernaum's the home base. This is where Jesus did so many miracles right off the Sea of Galilee. I've heard way too many people say, well, if only Jesus would show up in the flesh, then I'd believe. If only there'd be a miracle, then I'd believe. How did that work out for Capernaum? What did Capernaum do? They rejected Jesus. And what does Jesus say? No, you shall be brought down to Hades. Does that feel intense? Welcome to Vintage Grace. We are a joy-filled community of faith. What he's saying is, you Jews, you did not have an inside track. In fact, you got the law and you still missed it. Now you Gentiles, lest you judge the Jews, we're going to talk to you soon, so be careful. But the truth of the matter is that all of us will perish and be judged. That with the law or without the law, he says, sin without the law, sin with the law, either way you'll be perished, you'll be judged. I think he's saying the same thing. What he's saying is you cannot escape the judgment of God. It is just and it is deserved and it is coming, it is imminent. God loves you enough to tap you on the shoulder and say, Drew, get off my seat. He loves you enough to say, repent for the time is near. And so these are the two groups that apply to all of us. The, the text goes on, verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous. Are means right now. It's not the hearers of the law who are righteous right now before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now, does it feel like Paul's preaching works righteousness right here? This is a little scary. If you read outside of the context of all of his other letters, outside of the whole letter of Romans, then yes, it feels that way. Pay attention. Here's part of what Paul's saying. He's saying something I say here regularly. The best sermons at Vintage Grace are never going to be preached on a Sunday morning at church. They're going to be lived on a Monday morning on a baseball field. They're going to be lived at Oak Ridge on a Tuesday through a teacher or maybe a student on a Wednesday. They're going to be lived out. Why? Because talk is cheap. Because functionally, anybody can stand up here and preach a sermon. And my job is just to read the book. Anybody can do that. The real question is, are you living out the gospel? Has it gone from your head and penetrated your heart? Does it come out through your time, your treasure, your talent? Because it can't just be lip service to Jesus because he knows what's actually happening inside of your heart. So this is simply this. There's this question, for it is not the hearers of the law. Did the Jews get the advantage? They heard the law. Well, if they didn't do the law, then it was no advantage to them. Every one of them rejected who are righteous right now. And so the question for me, if we're all in the boat called B, and we're all hosed, does anyone else want to be saved today? <laughs> like, like, that's me, that's we together. And so how would one be saved? Well, if you read all of Paul's letters, and we're going to get there in Romans, remember, when we walk through the text, chapter 3 comes right after chapter 2. For us, it's taking months to get there, but for them, it took just a quick second. They're reading through chapter 2, they get chapter 3. How is one to be saved? Jesus, Jesus, oh, and wait, 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 Jesus. That's chapter 3. Verses 21, 26, Paul's asking us to slow down to think about the depth of our depravity, but chapter three is coming. So how is one to be saved? Paul says it this way, by grace through what? Faith. So, so the question is, is this even a hypothetical thing? John Stott thinks verse 13 is hypothetical. He says this, don't think that knowing the law of God is of any use. The only path to righteousness is through obeying the law. And if you really think you've perfectly obeyed the law, you're wrong. 
So if you think you're a good Jew, if you think you're a good Christian, Gentile, either way, you're in serious trouble. I tend to think that what Paul's saying here in verse 13 is about a directional connection between your faith and your works. Remember our James series? It was like four or five years ago. Here's what we said in James. Good works will never lead you to salvation, but salvation will always lead you to what? Good works. Why do we not preach about good works here at Vintage Grace? We preach about the joy of Jesus. If you have more joy in Jesus, guess what's going to flow from that heart? Good works. You're going to pray, watch, step. You're going to say, God, what are you inviting me into? We don't get up here and preach messages that, hey, you should do X, Y, or Z. What we say is, you should love God, put him on the throne of your heart, and he's going to give you this great adventure and more joy in your life than you'll ever have apart from him. That's the tension and that is the difference. And so the gospel is simply this. It's by grace it was a gift. If you heard the gift, if the gospel gets you, that's the question. It's not did you get the gospel. If you got the gospel, then the gospel got you and the whole rest of your life changes. How do you know if the gospel got you? Check your calendar. Check your budget. Check what makes you happy. And if you're like me, you're like, oh, crud. Well, guess what? It's a safe place. We repent. Why? Because verse 5 is his loving kindness leads us to repentance. Because I just had a whole list that just crept onto the throne of my heart with my calendar, my time, my treasure, my talent. And that gives us a chance. It's his loving kindness to say, wait, wait, wait. The gospel is that the gospel gets you by grace. It's a gift. You hear the grace. It goes from your head to your heart. It flows out through your hands. And it's through faith. Luke chapter 1, verse 6. You guys know Christmas is coming, right? I could skip October and just go straight to, to Turkey Day. Luke chapter one, we're talking about the birth of Jesus before comes the birth of John. Luke chapter one, verse five, we meet two people, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Verse six says this, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statues of the Lord. Zechariah and Elizabeth, were they perfect saints? No, in fact, just after that verse, Zechariah doubts God and he becomes mute. So what does that mean? What does chapter one, verse six mean in Luke chapter one? What it means is grace was given to them and the life of Christ was counted to them as righteousness. Hear the verse, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous right now. You notice that in the New Testament, Jesus never describes you as a sinner. That's a powerful truth, church. You are never described by what you've done, but now you're described by what he's done for you. Somebody say amen. Like, that's good news if you know yourself. The problem is a lot of us struggle with self-awareness. Anybody else struggle with that? Paul's giving us a moment to be self-aware, to be sinful aware. And so how is Zechariah counted as righteousness when just a couple verses later, he's going to be like, yeah, whatever, angel of God, I don't trust you. And he's like, oh, you don't trust me? This will be really fun. You won't get to talk. And then you'll tell people how much you trust me. We're not sinners anymore. We're sinners saved by what? Grace. Through faith. Faith means I receive the grace. Faith means I believe it. Faith means I believe that your better is better. Faith means I get off the throne of my heart and I repent. Faith means I no longer create God in my image, but I recognize that I'm created in his. That's faith. Faith is believing and trusting that God's better is better. And so Paul just simply says this. It's not the here's law who are righteous. Right now, you can be righteous if Christ is in you. If he's not in you, what are you? Well, then you're host. And I know what that's like, so I don't say that in judgment. I don't say that in wrath. I say that, and that's who I am. But the doers of the law will be justified. So there's a present reality and a future. The reality is this. You're going to face God face to face someday, and there's going to be a court hearing, and the question is guilty or not guilty. If it's Drew, there's only one verdict, guilty. If it's Christ through him, what is the verdict? 
not guilty. Like, like, do we recognize that? My fear is we're so busy, we're so focused on what's coming next, we deserve to be dead, but God. He, he gives us his life for ours, his death for ours, his resurrection for ours, and we are declared in verse 13, we are righteous and we will be justified. If you're doubting your salvation, if you put your hope and trust in Jesus Christ, you are saved. Don't go sin anymore, Jesus tells the sinner. Don't settle for less. Believe that my better is better if the gospel gets you. For God shows no partiality. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, we talked about the Jews, they had the law, they still settled for less. Gentiles who don't have the law, by nature do what the law requires. They have a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Have you ever recognized that? You see people that, like, they do the right thing just because it's the right thing, and you're like, you don't even love Jesus. There's times I'm surprised by that. Why do people who don't love Jesus still do things that Jesus tells them to do? I think because of the Imago Dei. Genesis chapter one, verse 26, God at creation said, I'm gonna create you in our image. Father, Son, Spirit, three in one. That's the Imago Dei. That inside everyone, when I'm praying for my prayer watch list, half the time I'm just saying, Lord, would you illuminate your image in them? Would you give them a hunger and a thirst for righteousness? Would you give them a passion to, to be in fellowship with you? Would you give them eyes to see? Would you give them the, the belief to get off the throne of their heart that it's better suited by you? For when Gentiles, they don't even have the law, but sometimes they do the right thing. Why? I think it's part of the moral law that was written on their hearts. It's part of the image bearer reality of creation where God said, I made you in my image. Now remember, here's the problem. We've been suppressing the truth. There's other times I look at humanity, I'm like, I don't even know how you think this is okay. And I try not to be judgmental when I do that, but it's because they've suppressed the truth is what Romans 1 tells us. That the image-bearing reality of humanity has not gone away, but it's gotten darker, amen? It's just getting worse. The, the lights are turning down. Now, we don't have to fear the darkness because greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. But make no mistake, the lights are getting turned down. But there are people in the world. But here's the concern that I have. They're still not good. Why? Because nobody's good but God alone. And so the light is revealing this. And so Gentiles, they have the light illuminating off of them in Christ. It's the image of God, but they have a moral law, and yet they've suppressed the truth. My kids and I recently were talking about making trades at lunchtime the other day, and I used to love trading snacks at lunch. I'd always offer my oranges for your orange fruit snacks. And I would convince people that it was good for them, it was healthy if they had the orange, and then my, my friends would be like, you're such a bully. Why, why would you do that? And, and, and here's the truth, we will offer someone something that we won't take for ourselves. That's the moral law in our heart. That even at a young age, we can say, that's a bad deal. That's not good. Hitting someone, again, I'm not kidding. The amount of times that I've been smacked by one of your kids and you've been like, oh, they're just so cute. No, they're not. <laughs> it's wrong. The moral law, but I think we live in a culture where we've suppressed the truth, where we no longer actually understand what truth is. We've made it relative. It's not, but we've made it that way in our culture. And so again, here's the truth of the matter. Even the Gentiles, they know what's right. They know what's wrong. And so God isn't even gonna hold them to the standard of Jesus. He's gonna hold them to their own standard and we don't even measure up to that. 
That's what Romans has been teaching us. They are a law to themselves. And even though they do not have the law, they don't measure up. Here's what he says. He simply says this. He's referring all the way back, I think, to Nehemiah. Nehemiah, it's this echo. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel all these days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Verse 15 says this. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts Their conscience also bears witness. Like Disney made a lot of money off of that little cricket, right? That's about the image of God. It's about the the truth of God speaking to you and you rejecting it. But even our conscience bears witness and our conflicting thoughts accuse us. That's what Paul's been saying. Your own conflicting thoughts, the amount of times you say, buzz off Jesus. If you call him Jimmy, that's fine too. Buzz off, leave me alone as he taps me on the shoulder that even our conscience we don't actually follow through on. Even the image of God and the whispers of the Holy Spirit, they accuse us. Or they might excuse them, verse 615 going into 16. Here's the problem. None of us actually follow the law perfectly. Therefore, we're all without excuse. Their conscience also bears witness, conflicting thoughts through. They, though they accuse, even excuse, but they do not. On that day, that day, The day is coming for every one of us. The day is coming when we meet Jesus face to face and on that day, the judgment of God will be seen and it will be received by you and by me. The loving kindness of God taps on the shoulder and gives us a chance to repent. But on that day, Paul says, according to my gospel, I love the way Spurgeon says it, that's a bold statement when he says my gospel. What he is saying is, this is not just the gospel of God unto salvation. What he's saying is, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. It's the power of God to save everyone that believes. Spurgeon says, Paul says, my gospel as a soldier speaks of my colors, my king, and my resolve. It is my banner of victory, and I will serve this royal truth even until the day I die. Here's what Paul's saying, I'm all in on the gospel of Jesus. Christ. When I meet Jesus face to face, I have one word answer, Jesus. Why should I let you into my heaven? Because of you, Jesus. I have nothing. If I had the law, I have nothing. If I didn't have the law, I have nothing. I have no defense. I only have grace that was given to me. And on that day, Paul says, according to my gospel, it's still God's gospel. He's just saying, I'm all in. On that day, according to the gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The judgment is not just me. The judgment is not just the moral law. The judgment is not just the the, the special revelation in general. The judgment is of Jesus. And on that day, and this blows my mind, on that day when Jesus sees Drew, and if my life is in Christ, you know the verdict that I'm going to get? That's crazy. As Americans who want what's fair, what's fair? There's no question about what's fair between me and Jesus. What's fair is guilt. What's fair is judgment. What's fair is wrath. What's fair is I have rejected God, but God was rich in mercy. What's not fair is mercy, and what's not fair is grace. What's not fair is verse 16, that on that day, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus, and he will see Drew And I pray that he will see you and he will say, welcome home, my good and faithful servant. If you know yourself, you know you don't deserve that, amen? You know Zechariah was not called righteous in Luke 1 because of what he did, because moments after, he was a knucklehead. That looks more like you and me. And so what are the implications for the text today? Here's the first one. 
I don't think that we can appreciate who Christ is until we actually truly see who we are. The problem is we spend our whole life trying to be busy and fill our life with things and stuff and cover up the throne of our heart so it looks presentable. We spend so much of our life, I believe, in what I call this Facebook fake world, which is, no, everything's awesome. Well, not when Drew rhymes with poo. It can't be awesome. It can't. And so my fear is simply this, that we can't appreciate who Christ is. We can't worship him for who he is. We can't proclaim amazing grace for who he is until we actually see who we are. But I'm convinced that Satan doesn't ever want to give us a chance to calm down, to breathe, to pause, and to actually look in a mirror. And so church, that's what Paul's given us right now. He's given us a chance to stop. Because who is Drew? Who are you? We are guilty. We are desperate. We are dependent. We are black felt. I passed these out at the beginning of the Roman series because I said, hey, we're going to talk about sin a lot these next eight weeks. And on some level, church, congratulations, you're halfway through. But really, we're, we're never done. We're never done stopping to wrestle with the depth of our depravity. In the New Testament, he never calls us sinners. He says we're sons and daughters of the kingdom. We're sinners that struggle with sin, but we're saints who have been redeemed again. I love America. The reality is in America, you know it's yours in one of two ways. If you made it and if you purchased it, Jesus did both for you and me. I want to invite you to grab the elements. Just hold them. Don't open them. I just want you to hold them. I want you to receive the gift that Paul's given us, which is to actually see you for who you are, to look at yourself in the mirror, and you're like, whoa, 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 I don't want that. Can we just talk about Jesus? We will, I promise. Chapter three is coming. But I want to give you a moment to just be still and hold these elements as you prepare, because true justice in the eternal courts is coming. And that's good news, because every one of us has had that icky feeling after an unsatisfactory court hearing. We've all had that feeling before where you're like, justice was not served. And so here's the good news of the gospel. God is fair. Justice will be served. Church, what we celebrate today is that the verdict is not guilty for us. That the wrath of God was poured out. It wasn't, it didn't go away. God hates sin. And sometimes I don't know if we fully understand that. When I say God hates sin, he hates what it did to you and to me in the garden. It's not that he, he hates you. Remember, love the sinner, hate the sin. No, it's love the sinner, hate my sin. God hates sin. Why? Because of what sin did to you and me, which was separate us from him. I mean, think about that. Too often we're like, well, God hates me because I'm a sinner. No, God hates sin and that you settled for lesser joys, but God loves you, that he gives you a moment to look at yourself in the mirror and say, Ugh, I am not good. I'm not okay. I'm not holy, I'm not righteous. I have rejected the Father. I've settled for less. I am desperate, I am dependent, I am guilty. That icky feeling of the unsatisfactory court hearing is what we see at the foot of the cross where God is fair, where Jew and Gentile, religious and irreligious, rule keeper, rule breaker, they're all leveled out at the foot of the cross. Sin puts us all in the same spot, sinner in need of a savior. And so I wanna encourage you as you hold these elements to take a moment and, and legitimately take off whatever covering you have on the throne of your heart that makes you feel like, I'm, I'm, I'm doing good. Look, my, my, my throne's all clean, like it's in a good spot. It's, it's all nice and pretty. No, no, let the Spirit of God just open up your heart and say, no, this is an icky part, Drew. This is a yucky part. This is sin. 
I think we start to look and we, we get off the covering and we start to pull out things on the throne of our heart. And sometimes they're, they're, they're like actions, time, treasure, talent. Sometimes we, we, we have money on the throne of our heart. I'd ask my daughter to borrow a hundred dollar bill because I don't own one. But money, and sometimes money's in a for God envelope and that's a good thing. That's a religious action. God, I'm giving you back, I'm tithing, I'm giving back what's yours, but your religiosity will not save you. Good works will never lead you to salvation. Sometimes you're not religious, you're irreligious, and so money still sits on the throne of your heart. Whether it's in a for God envelope or not, it doesn't matter. The issue is, are we stewarding the resources or are we selfish? But it's a hard issue either way. The issue for the yet to believe and the issue for the believer is the same thing. It's who and what sits on the throne of your heart. And if it's anybody other than Jesus, guilty is the verdict. Guilty is deserved. Guilty is earned. But God being rich in mercy gives us loving kindness. He taps us on the shoulder. And so the second implication is to look in the mirror and then to remember the loving kindness that leads us to repentance. As we hold these elements, part of what I love is that communion is a time for us to repent. It's a time for us to reflect. It's a time for us to say, what's happening inside my heart? To slow down, to be still, and to repent. Charles Simeon says it this way. There are but two objects that I've ever desired that sit on the throne of my heart. To to behold the one is my own vileness. When I look at me in the mirror and I look at the ways I've rejected God and cast them away, no wonder why he has said, go ahead Sin is God giving us what we wanted, which was to reject him. It's not that we rejected him. It's, the, it's not that he rejected us. It's the other way around. He says this, the one is myself. The other is God's glory. In the face of Jesus Christ, I have always thought that those should be viewed together. What Pastor Charles is simply saying, he's just simply saying, as we live our journey with Jesus, the cross expands. As we take time to meditate on the depth of our depravity and the height of God's glory that has no gravity, we get overwhelmed by the cross because it was given for you. It was given as a gift to you, but you gotta receive it. His loving kindness taps you on the shoulder, and so church, if if you're here today and you've been living a life of self-righteousness, can I encourage you, the gospel calls you to repent. If you've been living a life of busyness, that the cross is not central, that anything other than him sits on the throne of your heart, repent. His loving kindness calls us to that. And repentance is not just getting off the throne of your heart, it's giving him a seat back, and then it's receiving the gospel. It's receiving the hope of the gospel. And so I wanna invite you right now to just take the elements and, and just open the bread. If you don't trust and treasure Jesus, we do this every so often, you don't need to do this. It's for those of us who have repented and received the gospel. Would you take a minute, would you just break the bread? This has legitimately become like one of my favorite worship songs at Vintage Grace. His body was broken for you. You have to receive it. You have to take it and you have to receive it. A gift is no good if it's not open and received. And so the gospel is preached in Romans. Why? Because apart from the preaching of the gospel, we will not be saved. We will be separated from God forever. But in the preaching of the gospel, God taps us on the shoulder and we look at ourselves in the mirror and we get up front of our heart and we say, God, I want to receive you. I want to receive the hope of your life for mine and your death for mine. And so Jesus, on the night of betrayal, he gathered his disciples. He said, this is my body that's going to be broken for you. It's going to be the wrath of God displayed because God hates sin, but he loves you. And he loves you so much that his body was broken for you. Receive this in remembrance of him. Would you open the cup?
And the cup is the, the sign of the blood, the symbol of, of new life. The wrath of God satisfied was poured out on his son. How is God maintaining his fairness? Because the wrath of God is given. It's just not given to you. It was given to Jesus instead. Take this in remembrance of him. So Jesus, we receive you as the hope of the world. We receive you as the hope of our life that while we were still yet sinners, you died for us. We repent. We give you back the throne of our heart. We get off and we repent. We say, Father, this is your seat. Son, you've made a way when there was no other way. We are no longer defined by what we've done, but we're defined by, by you, by what you've done for us. That it's not about what the world says that we've done. It's about what you, Father, says that we've done. And when you see us, you see your son and you see righteousness that we couldn't earn, that we couldn't deserve. And so we praise you, Father, for the cross. We praise you that in your infinite wisdom, you saw us in our despair, in our settling for less, and you made a way when there was no other way, and you gave of your son. Jesus, we praise you that you asked the Father if there was another way, and when the Father said no, you said, not my will, but thy will be done. And for the joy set before you, Christ, you endured the cross because you love us. Spirit of God, we want to be marked by your love today. We want to be marked and defined by who you say that we are, that we are no longer a child of wrath, but instead we are a son of the king. We live in a divided world, but just like the Romans, we are called to unity in Christ as we live on mission in our daily lives. Let this message be an encouragement to you as you go into the spaces and places that God takes you this week. Until next time.